Hey, left fielders, you know our partner TribeVest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, TribeVest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. TribeVest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the open tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse access to take advantage of deal webinars and open tribes. Hi, this is Zach Hapsenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200-plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equities Multifamily Investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. Could invest in distressed assets, preferred equity that's coming in and kind of providing rescue capital to some deals that are distressed that need equity infusions and earn maybe 16%. So you got to kind of compare all the variables that are out there, uh, the different risks associated with the different assets and investment options. And then in my opinion, you have to diversify appropriately and maybe you take some shots on a, a certain portion of your portfolio. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Ryan Murdoch from Open Door Capital, and you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm very excited today to have Paul Shannon with us. He is the principal and owner of Red Hawk Real Estate, as well as fund manager of InvestWise Collective, which we'll do a lot of talking about today. Uh, since transitioning to real estate investing full-time in 2019, Paul's acquired over 200 residential uh, units by recycling his equity and or joint ventures. He has experience in underwriting acquisitions, raising capital, property management, and is a licensed realtor. He's also an experienced limited partner and an LFI infielder. He's invested over 1,500 multifamily units. In addition to multifamily, he's an LP in triple net leases, industrial sale, leasebacks, preferred equity notes, ATMs, mixed-use development, and probably much, much more. Paul was a guest on episode 17 back in 2021. He's also been on the LFI spotlight at least once, and I think... I think twice. So, Paul, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, quite the introduction. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be a second-time guest. Excited to be here. Well, we're, we're happy to have you and super uh, excited to talk about InvestWise Collective, which is a partnership between your company, Red Hawk Real Estate, and Left Field Investors. So I really want to get into that. But before we do, can you just tell us your, your financial journey? How'd you get into real estate? And you don't have to go all the way back. If people really want to get into it, they could listen to episode 17. Um, but just give us kind of an overview. How'd you get into real estate and, and what you're up to now? Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. But uh, essentially, I started Red Hawk Real Estate back in 2016, uh, was working in medical device and capital equipment sales at the time. 
was noticing that uh, my career wasn't quite aligning with my values and was looking for a little bit more control over my time, which I think a lot of your listeners and, and the membership of the LFI community can appreciate. And uh, I bought a duplex. Then I started buying a few homes at auction and implementing the Burr strategy where you buy, renovate, uh, fill with a tenant, refinance and repeat essentially, and try to recycle out your capital. And had some success doing that. And really the only thing that was standing in my way of scaling that up more was uh, my W-2 job. So I decided to go out on a limb, take the risk with the support of my family and my wife. And uh, in 2000, beginning of 2019, left to pursue real estate full time. Uh, We focused heavily on single family and small multifamily at that point. During COVID, the beginning stages of COVID, we transitioned to multifamily and started getting involved in mid-sized assets that were kind of mom and pop operators that has inefficiencies, whether it was value add through renovations or operations. But same strategy we employed with single family homes was kind of the Burr method, but on on steroids, if you will, with multifamily. Obviously, commercial properties, multifamily are valued a little bit differently than single families. Market comps for single families versus NOI and cap rates for, for multifamily. But uh, you could take that same sort of philosophy, add value, then refinance and get your capital back out and create more velocity of money. So that's what we did for a while. Um, all the while, I've been investing as a passive investor. You mentioned during the introduction some of the things I've been involved with to kind of diversify away from myself as an operator and get into different markets that I didn't have boots on the ground or capabilities to be an active investor in. Uh, so it was kind of you know deploying some capital passively as well as actively. Uh, and then, you know, kind of saw the writing on the wall in 2022, very beginning of 2022, when Jerome Powell uh, sort of telegraphed that rates were going to be rising. Inflation was about 9%. We assumed that uh, rates were going to rise very quickly, and that was going to put pressure on cap rates to decompress a little bit. So we kind of backed off. And we've been sitting on the sidelines a little bit more. Uh, we're still active. We're buying single families, and I'm selectively investing in passive opportunities that I think have good risk-adjusted returns. But that pretty much brings us up to today. Excellent. Well, thank you for that uh, summary. So, what do you what are you seeing in the commercial real estate market today? And it could be multifamily homes or or other asset classes. But as you said, you know we had such a run up in interest rates, and that has caused huge uncertainty, which has made it very difficult for buyers and sellers to kind of meet at the right price, right? So, what are you seeing, and and what do you think's uh, coming in the near future? Well, to classify and put all of commercial real estate under one umbrella would probably be unfair because, you know, different geographies are experiencing different headwinds or tailwinds. Uh, There are obviously different challenges for different asset classes. Office and hospitality probably face the most challenges because the work from home trend that started during the pandemic is apparently apparently here to stay. So, um, you know, if you've got an office building that has 40, 50 percent occupancy and it was at 75 percent, 80 percent when the initial loan was signed, uh, now you've got a maturity coming up and the property's NOI, the income that it's producing is way, way down. So the debt that's in place and the equity is potentially wiped out, but the debt that's in place is not supportive of the income anymore. So you've got a a situation there where there could be some distress. Uh, I don't think banks want to take these properties back, but there could be, you know, deep discounts. There could be situations where these these buildings are eventually repurposed, but that's going to take a long time. So uh, that's not necessarily the same situation in retail, which seems to be having kind of a boom right now. So uh, to put everything under one one classification as commercial real estate, I think the media sometimes does that. You, you read a lot of clickbait articles about how commercial real estate is doomed. 
Um, but there are certain assets that are doing very, very well. And then there are others that have some significant challenges ahead of them. So um, as it relates to multifamily, the era of cheap money is certainly over. Uh, 2020, 2021, bridge debt was all the rage. It was really the, the only uh, method of financing that was getting deals done because sellers knew that they were sitting on a gold mine and bridge debt is really designed for the seller to get max sale proceeds, not for the buyer to do well. So um, these, these loans have variable rate. They're adjustable based on when interest rates move. They usually move. Uh, prudent uh, operators got rate caps in place that kind of limited the amount that that interest rate could rise. But those rate caps are starting to expire on existing loans if they weren't purchased to cover the whole uh, three years of maturity, for example. So there's a lot of headwinds facing existing assets. Um, you know, interest rates and cap rates are very heavily correlated. Uh, they're not necessarily 100% correlated, but they're they're pretty closely related. So uh, as interest rates have gone from into the you know twos, low threes, up to now the sixes, uh, that's made the cost of capital significantly higher, and it's essentially put a situation in place where uh, existing assets need to find a home, their permanent debt, and their debt service coverage won't be supportive of the property's income. Uh, so unless an operator is able to force appreciation usually typically higher than their pro forma has stated. Um, they're in a situation where new debt that they need to take out, uh, you know, will probably end up wiping out a lot of the capital that was brought in as far as equity is concerned. So operators could be in a position where they have to make capital calls. And in some cases, some of these distressed assets may come back to the banks. So um, multifamily has been historically a pretty good performer in times of recessions and times of hard times. So I don't see that as being a huge widespread issue. Uh, but to your point, you know, the bid and the ask right now are a little bit far apart. So there's a lot less transactions happening on the multifamily side. Sellers want 2021 prices and they haven't realized yet that cap rates have expanded and pricing has has come down a little bit. And buyers are kind of waiting to see what happens and being cautious, which is you know, prudently so. Uh, so when that right. gap closes, which we think is happening here in the next call at six months to 24 months, um, you know, there should be some good buying opportunities. But we think it's going to be at um, you know, much lower returns than LPs have been used to and the era of cheap money instead of the 20, 30% IRRs. We're going to be looking more in the mid-teens and lower cash on cash and probably longer hold periods as well. And how do you educate your investors and let them know, hey, you know, it's not going to be like two to three years, 20% IRR, double your money every couple of years. Now it's going to be maybe five to seven years, a lower IRR, taking a longer time um, to get your capital back and and to have success. How are you communicating that and how are investors taking it? Well, I think people are coming around to the idea because they understand there's a couple of things that have gone on. Bridge debt, that market has sort of dried up. It's no longer really available. There are, there are certain bridge lenders that are out there uh, private lenders that are offering much higher interest rates than were available a couple of years ago. And in a lot of cases, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So most operators are now going towards uh, agency debt on the multifamily side or more fixed rate products, stuff that has like step down prepay penalties where they're not getting into a situation where they have to pay yield maintenance or defiance if they try to sell earlier than the maturity but ones that allow them a little bit more flexibility to potentially refinance or exit in, say, five to seven years. So that in and of itself is a situation where, you know, you're going to have longer hold periods. Um, lower leverage as well. 
Uh, instead of you know 80% loan to value or loan to cost, you're going to see stuff more in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and that's simply because these properties are debt service coverage restraint. Um, if the property produces X income and the debt service has risen by this much, you know, quite a bit more than it was before, that leaves a lot less free cash flow. And lenders want to see at least a cover of 1.2 to 1.3, meaning that the income the property produces is 1.2 or 1.3 times higher than the debt service. So if the cost of capital has gone up that much, that leaves a lot less in the form of loan proceeds. So that's why these loan to values are, are much lower. And with less leverage, you create lower returns as well. So there's still good assets out there. There's still good markets to invest in. But the expectation has to be longer holds, lower returns moving forward. And I think when you see as an LP, uh, you know, the shiny objects, the OMs that show, you know, IRRs in the 20 plus range, higher cash on cash, you really need to be asking questions about how is that possible in today's market? Right. And you mentioned yield maintenance and defeasance. Can you just so everyone's on the same page, can you uh, tell us what those mean? Sure. Yield maintenance is typically associated with agency debt and defiance is associated with other products like CMBS loans. Uh, but these are basically prepayment penalties. So if a you always want to make sure that the debt matches the business plan. So if your plan is to sell in three years and you take out a 10-year agency loan product that has yield maintenance and you try to sell at year three, you're going to get crushed with penalties uh, and it's going to really hurt the return. So Experienced operators know to kind of do that, match that plan with the debt. Um, so those are those are things that you want to avoid. I think a lot of um, operators got hit in like, let's say, 2015 with a lot of yield maintenance and, and learned that maybe they need to be more prudent in how they structure their debt. But then it kind of the pendulum swung the other way and you're in a bridge debt scenario where it's, you know, there's a different uh, skeleton in the closet hiding there. So <laughs> Right, right. But, but now like, now everyone's going for fixed rate debt, as you said, right? When interest rates might have maybe peaked or close to it, right? So now you would think is the time that people should start maybe thinking about bridge debt again, right? Because you're assuming or you're hoping or you're thinking the forecast is maybe one more rate increase, maybe none, but then it's going to start trending down. And so locking into long-term fixed rate debt now seems like you're locking in at the high point and then you won't be you won't get the benefit of any of those uh, decreases. So how are people uh, dealing with that issue? Well, you know, the bridge debt market, the availability of lenders out there who are willing to lend in that style are, are there's a lot less of them today. So uh, it hasn't come back like it was in 2021. And that seemed to be the only game in town. Um, I don't see a lot of deals getting done with like 10 year fixed rate debt. I see it kind of in that happy medium range where it may be five years with a three, two, one, one step down or something like that, where it's a little bit more flexible. Uh, if in fact the operator wants to sell in year three and rates have come down or they want to refinance in year three, there may be a smaller prepayment penalty where they're not going to get hit, but they've underwritten to that and it's in their pro forma and they can okay. kind of adjust to that scenario. And then you met, you're mostly talking about multifamily, right? So what other asset classes or whatever types of invest, what other types of investments are you looking at now that you think might have some, some room to run? Yeah, good question. You know, I think it's challenging to find uh, much to get excited about in the office space or the hospitality world, at least from where I stand today. Uh, but at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think there's some good risk-adjusted bets that are out there and other asset classes. 
one of those is small bay flex industrial space. Think of a building, an industrial building that may have 10 tenants, and each bay is 2,500 square feet or so. This is the kind of operator that might be a franchise owner uh, that just needs a space for their overhead and maybe a small office up front. Uh, across the markets that I've you know, looked into and where I live in Indianapolis, there's just no lease for space. There's no supply whatsoever, very undersupplied markets. So uh, there's some of that stuff being built right now, but it still can't meet demand. So I think there's a strong thesis there. Uh, another one is non-grocery anchored essential retail. Think of like your neighborhood strip center that has tenants that are like your dental office. Uh, maybe it's a gym, uh, pizza place, stuff that's e-commerce resistant, that's recession resistant, um, that has kind of sticky tenants that are going to stay that are hopefully credit worthy. Uh, I think those have some, those types of assets have some strong uh, you know, market dynamics and there's undersupply. It seems like there's a lot of people that are or businesses that are looking to lease up those spaces. And some of the deals that we've looked at, you can buy these assets between a seven and an eight cap, and they may have some upside. They may have a vacancy that needs to be filled. And once they're stabilized, they're going to operate closer to 11%, 12%. So there's some real yield there well above the interest rate. So a lot of times in like multifamily, we're seeing never negative leverages get what, what, you know, how deals are getting done. So if you get an interest rate at 6%, you're buying at a four and a half cap. That's typically where the underwriting can stop for me. You know, that's usually not going to pencil too well. And there's a lot of risk there um, and, and not a lot of returns, not a lot of meat on the bone, where if you're able to buy a retail strip center that's going to operate at 11 or 12 and you're taking out six or 7% debt, there's plenty of gap there between the interest rate and the, uh, the operating cap rate. So those are a couple that are exciting. Um, I think Multifamily, there's some uh, there's some strong thesis behind the Midwest right now. You look at the Southeast, the Sun Belt, Arizona, Texas. A lot of these markets were the ones that were the darlings during COVID, and uh, cap rates uh, compressed all the way down to the three handle range. Uh, and now we're starting to see those expand, and those assets that were bought in 2021, 2022 are, are struggling to grow NOI fast enough to keep up with that cap rate expansion. On top of that, they have a ton of deliveries coming to market over the next. Uh, 24 months or so. So there's going to be the question around whether or not those deliveries can be absorbed. And then what sort of downward pressure does that put on existing assets as these newer assets that are nicer uh, are offering concessions to to get tenants into the doors? So a little bit less excited about those markets today and more excited about the Midwest where it's sort of steady eddy. Never seen that sort of ramp up or take off in valuations. Uh, rent growth has been pretty consistent and has actually been leading the country over the last year or so in markets like Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Columbus. Uh, and there's really not a lot of deliveries coming to market in these areas and the population is still growing steadily. So um, with those dynamics in place, I think those uh, markets and, and you know, certain asset classes with, of course, the right operator uh, are, are, still good, uh, are, are still good bets. Um, so you're still... You're mostly active in the multifamily or single-family residential, right? And then your LP investments are in a bunch of different things. So why are you doing both? Is it just for diversification or are there other reasons that you're kind of doing both active and passive investing? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with diversification. Uh, I think eventually, you know, the natural progression for me and for a lot of people is to go 100% passive, right? There'll be a time in my life where it just won't make as much sense to spend every waking hour reading about 
real estate networking with other investors, uh, underwriting deals and getting my hands dirty in the operations side of things. I'll just want to take that mailbox money and and go to the beach with it. So uh, eventually I'm going to get there and I want to, until that point, kind of understand who the operators are that I want to invest with for the long term. So it's a little bit of an experiment from that standpoint. But uh, you know, I do want to diversify in markets. I think it's super important uh, when I do invest with a operator that they have boots on the ground, they have operations in the market that they are buying the asset in. A lot of deals that I've seen go sideways are from operators that have started in one market and then branched out and thought they could kind of take that same knowledge, that same operation and move it over. And they struggle to do that. And without oversight in real estate, these physical assets deteriorate. You want to have oversight with your property manager and make sure that they're not pulling the wool over your eyes. You want to have eyes, ears, feet uh, on the property. So um, I can't do that personally. I can't invest in Texas or Florida or even certain markets in the Midwest that I find attractive today. Um, We did invest in in those markets uh, 2018, 2019 in the Sunbelt area, and those assets turned out to be pretty good deals. Um, not looking there as much now, like I mentioned, but, you know, just for me to try to expand into all these different markets doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's very difficult. So I'd rather find a really solid sponsor who has a track record, who knows that market much better than I can, who has a team in place that would take me years to build and just say, okay, I know that you can handle this much better than I can, but I also have the experience as an active operator to kind of manage the manager, if you will. Um, where I kind of understand what they are facing as an active operator and how to kind of vet them uh, to make sure that I trust them with my capital. So there's that piece of it. And then so it's diversification in markets. And there's also diversification away from me as an active operator. If I put all my eggs in one basket myself, and I believe in myself wholeheartedly, but I also want to know that if you know I make a bet that's not right, that I've got these other seeds planted in different areas with different people that can also grow as well. Right. And you can also learn from from the other operators, right? If you're investing with somebody who does something differently than you do, or you can then implement that in your own investing. So I think that's a that's a smart strategy. Now, I've heard you talk about risk-adjusted returns. Can you tell us what that means and why is that different than the pro forma returns that, that we see on the, uh, on the investor docs that the, uh, that the operators send out? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to kind of quantifying risk, and I think everyone's risk tolerance is different. So that can be rather difficult. But one way to kind of set the benchmark is to look at the risk-free rate of return and compare that to other assets. So usually that's the 10-year treasury. Right now, it's yielding a little over 4%. Um, but I would argue that it's even you know less risky to put you know money into a high-yield savings account that's paying 5% which is where some of my capital is today. Now, if you compare that 5% to, let's say, a 5% cap rate deal or a 4% cap rate deal in Dallas, you know, think about the risk of investing in a private placement real estate deal with a sponsor. Maybe you've invested with them, maybe you haven't. You're going to trust their pro forma. You know that it's a rising interest rate environment and there's, there's cap rate decompression. There's all these risk variables, right? Versus a 5% yield in a high yield savings account that's basically risk-free. So you may you know, end up with a 12%, 14% return on that Dallas deal, but is it worth it versus the 5% you know you can get today that you can kind of keep there and safely have it earning interest to deploy it when you find a much better risk-adjusted bet that's not as risky as the Dallas deal? 
Um, that's kind of how I look at things is just comparing it to other available alternatives in the marketplace. Uh, and it really comes down to the individual, right? I mean, you could you could take that 5% or you could go and you could lend private money to a flipper in your town and probably make 14%. Uh, you could invest in distressed assets, uh, private uh, or preferred equity that's coming in and kind of providing rescue capital to some deals that are distressed that need equity infusions and earn maybe 16%. So you got to kind of compare all the variables that are out there, uh, the dis- different risks associated with the different assets and investment options. And then in my opinion, you have to diversify appropriately. And maybe you take some shots on a, pr- a certain portion of your portfolio. Maybe you don't, but you you don't hear that a lot from operators. I think a lot of times they're just saying real estate is the game in town. You should invest in my deals. You know, 401ks are bad. Stocks are bad. All the other asset classes are not attractive. And I find that to be kind of off-putting because I think that there's a strong argument to make that LP positions, uh, private real estate deals are, are a very important uh, component to a portfolio but they should never be 100% of a portfolio. You kind of want to weigh out all the different options and create a portfolio that makes sense based on your risk tolerance. Yeah, great, great, great stuff. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record, or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Attention all left fielders, we're excited to announce our highly anticipated second meetup in the left field, happening on October 4th through the 6th in Columbus, Ohio. Join us for a fantastic opportunity to meet your fellow left fielders and connect with amazing sponsors and professionals. We have a special infield event planned on Wednesday night, October 4th, followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Thursday the 5th and half day on the 6th. Don't wait to register as spots are limited to the first 150 people who sign up. Stay tuned for finalized agenda packed with partner presentations, engaged panel discussions, networking opportunities, and more. We can't wait to see you in Columbus, Ohio this October. Register on our website and secure your spot at the meetup in left field 2023. It's time to connect, learn, and grow together. I want to pivot now and talk about the new partnership that we have between Leftfield Investors and Red Hawk Real Estate, and it's called InvestWise Collective. What is InvestWise Collective, and why, why are we starting? InvestWise Collective is an extremely exciting partnership, and I couldn't be more thrilled to be grouped with, uh, with you guys, the Leftfield Investors. I think it's going to be a great success. But essentially, what InvestWise Collective is, is a customizable fund. So we're going to take our knowledge as operators, as experienced limited partners, and aggregate together to find strong risk-adjusted deals and allow our investors to participate in those deals alongside us. But they're allowed to do it in a customizable way. And what I mean by that is, in our fund, the minimum is $50,000 okay, to, to initially get into the fund. But then you can slice up that $50,000 and do smaller positions of $25,000 in each deal, right? We're only allowed 99 investors. This is a, a Reg D 506C offering. 
Um, but essentially what we're going to do is let's say the fund eventually grows to have 10 assets in it in a couple of years. One individual LP investor may have uh, five positions within that. So they can choose which deals within the fund they decide to participate in, which ones match up with their risk tolerance. And what we're going to do as fund managers is kind of explain where the risk is in the deal, who might be the right investor for this deal, what portion of that investor's portfolio may this deal fit into, and then let the investor decide if they want to participate from there. So I think that's a little bit of a different approach than what most funds do. Uh, a lot of them are blind pool funds where you just give the operator the capital. They have some sort of a criteria or box that they're going to buy within. And then you don't know what those assets are. It's just whatever that operator decides to buy within that box is what you're, what you're going to get. Uh, in this case, you decide if the deal is right for you after we decide it's a yay or nay, uh, and then go from there. So, And what's nice, too, is that it's a little bit more streamlined where the uh, LP, the retail investor that participates in the fund, is going to get 1K1 for all the positions that they're in. So it should be a little bit more efficient at tax time. Uh, but we're looking for, like I said, strong risk-adjusted returns across a host of asset classes. That could be triple net deals, industrial deals, retail deals, multifamily, self-storage, mobile homes, um, really any any real estate asset class where we feel we know, like, and trust the sponsor. The sponsor has a track record. They have boots on the ground in that market. Their underwriting is conservative and explained very, very well. And it's not just about the shiny object numbers that are out there like IRR, cash on cash, and equity multiple, which I feel as though can be manipulated pretty easily, and more about putting in conservative inputs that lead to realistic outputs. So currently, left field investors, we do a a lot of deal webinars, right, where an operator will bring a deal, present it, and then we have all kinds of disclaimers that, you know, we haven't vetted it, we haven't, you know, it's kind of a, we use the community to vet the operator. We use the community to analyze the deal. And left field investors just allows access, right? Gives deal flow to the community. So is this going to be different than that from a deal perspective where are you going to be doing a little bit more analysis on the deal and vetting these deals for the um, for the for the group rather than have the group vet the deals um, for the individuals? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, you know, that gets back to your question of why are we doing this? Um, and, you know, why not just directly invest with the sponsor? I think those are two separate questions. So let me address both of those. So why are we doing this is one question. Right now, uh, interest rates have gone up quite a bit. The cost of capital has gone up quite a bit. As we've discussed, debt service coverage is restrained. So operators need to bring more equity with lower loan to values to deal. So there's a need in the marketplace for capital because there's more needed to get deals done. There's also, uh, because of you know the looming concern over these deals that it got done in 2021, beginning of 2022, there's been kind of a pullback in LP interest. Now, in my opinion, there's going to be some really great deals that happen in the next six months, 24 months. Uh, the time to be bearish was when there was irrational exuberance and it seemed like nothing could go wrong. So the time to put the brakes on was, was long before today. Uh, as interest rates kind of level out and the bid and the ask close, it's starting to look more attractive. So I would encourage people not to get too bearish now because the LPs that stay in the game today are going to come out with some really, really strong deals because there's less players in the market. So there's less competition to get involved in these deals. Uh, but those are reasons why, even though that that is the case, there's still a sentiment that 
you know, there, there could be a looming issue, looming problems with these, these existing deals. So all future deals are going to be pretty bad too, right? Not that that's accurate, but it's harder to raise capital, uh, even if loan-to-values hadn't changed and you'd still get 80% loan-to-value on a bridge loan. Uh, right now, today, it's, it's two or three times harder to raise capital. So there's a need from the sponsor standpoint. Um, now, I've seen a lot of LPs get caught up in the shiny object syndrome and get into situations where they're in deals with capital calls or sponsors that aren't uh, meeting their uh, pro formas or aren't living up to the expectations they set with their uh, with their LPs. And that's where I feel like maybe I can come in and help a little bit too. Um, I fortunately have not had any capital calls. I've had one deal out of, I think, 14 positions I'm in right now actively that has paused distributions and it has nothing to do with the debt they used. Uh, so we really are careful about looking at the debt uh, that the operator is using. So that's the reason why we're doing it now is because we think we can help sponsors with equity and bring bring capital to their deals. And we think we can help LPs uh, get into deals that are, are really attractive from a risk adjusted standpoint uh, and, you know, look at it through a little bit of a different lens. So, yeah, I mean, why not invest directly with sponsor? There's one reason right there. It's just to get another set of eyes on it, higher level of underwriting, from a group with myself included that spends literally every waking hour of the workday looking at real estate deals and talking about real estate. Most most limited partners are passive and they've got W-2 jobs, they've got other obligations, they don't have that kind of time, so they can't look at deals with that level of scrutiny. Um, this fund is going to work with sponsors to get better terms as well. Um, we're doing them a favor instead of, let's say, just for easy math, they need a million dollars. Instead of going to $20,000, $50,000 check writers, they can come to InvestWise Collective for $1 million check. And with that, we hope that we can negotiate better terms that we can pass on to our limited partners better than that they would get if they had invested directly with the sponsor. So instead of a 7% prep and a 70-30 promote, Waterfall structure, it might be a 8% PREF in a 80-20 or 75-25, something like that. So uh, we negotiate better terms. We keep a little bit for overhead uh, to cover overhead. And then on the back end, we make money only if everybody else makes money. Um, and then better access too. some deals. I've been talking with sponsors this week, as a matter of fact, where you know minimum check sizes are a million dollars. So those aren't deals that retail investors can typically get involved in, right? Those are family offices. Uh, those are other you know, super high net worth individuals. So if we can come in as a source of capital for those deals, we can give limited partners uh, opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have. So uh, those are reasons why not to invest directly with a sponsor, why you couldn't invest directly with a sponsor, and reasons why I think now is a really good time to start a fund. Who would you say this is for? What type of investor? And then also, is there any co-investment by um, the principles of InvestWise Collective in these deals? Will they, be, will they have skin in the game? Absolutely. To the latter question, we're going to be investing in every deal that we participate in uh, alongside the investors. And I think that's a really important factor for me personally as a retail investor and other deals that I've invested in. I want to know that the sponsor has skin in the game beyond just the acquisition fee. I don't want them to slice off you know, half of their acquisition fee and tell me that that's their skin in the game because they never really came out of pocket for anything. I want them to come into their bank account, dip into it, and then put that money into the deal, which is what we plan to do. Um, and then who is this fund for? Um, I think it's for somebody that, you know, is looking for a variety of different assets to invest in. Um, 
like I said, there's going to be some customization that will be passed along to the retail investor that participates in these funds. So someone that wants to kind of uh, have the ability to have a little bit more control within a fund, but also have the ease of use of the fund. Um, so somebody that wants to be a repeat investor in multiple deals, I would say, that you know wants to be active. I, I mentioned at the beginning of this, this interview that we, we only can accept 99 investors total. Uh, it's a $20 million fund in total size. So we're hopeful that you know, we can have a, a long runway with the investors that do participate. That would be half a million dollars per investor, but this is going to be going on for 10 years. So, um, you know, we're looking for for 25,000 a deal minimum. So um, I would say it's for someone who's, you know, looking for a little bit more control, but also to have somebody at the wheel that can kind of identify these assets and identify these opportunities uh, that's spending a lot more time doing it during the course of the day. And, you know, the, the question I, I ask this to almost everybody who comes on the podcast about vetting a sponsor. So how do you vet a sponsor? And are, are these operators that are going to be, um, you know, the assets that are going to be in this fund? Are these operators that we might already know through left field investors or through our own investing? Or are these new operators that we're going to have to get comfortable with? And then you're but you're vetting them for us. So talk about how do you vet the sponsor? And then what kind of operators are, are you going to be partnering with? And you don't have to mention names, but are they names that we will be familiar with? I think some of them will be. Yeah, I, I know that I've invested personally with some sponsors that LFI has a close relationship with. So there'll certainly be some opportunities uh, with familiar faces, I would say. Uh, but then also some that are not familiar to the group, which I think is exciting. You know, there's there's some sponsors that I've had good luck with personally on the investing side that I'd like to introduce the fund to. Um, and I'm constantly meeting new sponsors, too, and, and trying to evaluate deals outside of the network that I currently have. So I think it'll be a mix. Uh, but how do we vet those sponsors? Well, I think one of the mantras of, of LFI is knowing, liking, and trusting the person that you're dealing with. And I do believe that betting on the jockey is more important than the horse, for sure. Um, so I would I would agree with that. Most important of those three characteristics is trust, though. I would say trusting this person as a fiduciary of my money. I want to know that when I invest as a limited partner, that that person looks at my money as more important than their own, Right. They're, they are taking a uh, responsibility uh, of managing my nest egg and growing my wealth. And to me, that's extremely important. There are you know, certain operators out there that look at using other people's capital, other people's money as a license to acquire. And that has really kind of turned me off in many cases because uh, you know, these high acquisition fees, these asset management fees, there's kind of a natural built-in conflict of interest there, right? Um, so we want to make sure that the operator truly believes that they have a responsibility as fiduciary and that they're taking care of, care of and being a steward of our capital. Um, otherwise, hopefully they couldn't sleep at night. So that's number one. And then we look at their track record, of course. And I think the track record, um, you know, argument or, or the, the a person's track record is only as good as how long they've been in the business, right? I mean, if they started in 2017 and they haven't bought a deal since 2021, everybody's track record during that time period looked pretty good. So uh, have they gone through a few recessionary periods, some downturns in the market and experienced some pain? What was that pain like? What did they learn from those lessons? How did their investors come out during those situations? 
Um, how did they bounce back from that? And where are they today? So looking at kind of longer track records, but not necessarily excluding those that are newer operators, because, you know, I, I didn't start, you know, during a time where the market was down or I haven't experienced a significant downturn. I did in my stock portfolio, which I think has kind of altered and changed my risk tolerance and my behavior as an investor. Um, so I'm old enough to know what 2008 felt like and what 2001 felt like. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, we, we just want to make sure that we're being very careful about what we define as a track record. And then at the deal level, uh, I'm a big believer that math doesn't lie, but spreadsheets do. So in no case would I invest without looking at an operator's spreadsheet. And uh, you can really make a spreadsheet tell whatever you want it to, to do. You can steer it, you can squeeze it and make it to kind of tell the storyteller or tell the narrative of the storyteller. So um, as mentioned before, we don't want to focus too much in on equity multiples and IRRs and cash on caches because they're so easily manipulated based on, you know, if you shorten the hold period, you can juice your IRR. If you lower your terminal cap rate uh, when the deal exits, you can make your IRR look better. If you add, you know, 4% rent growth instead of 3% rent growth, you can make your IRR look more attractive. So we really kind of want to drill down into those metrics and understand those inputs, understand how the operator thinks. Uh, and, and that says a lot about their risk tolerance and, and what they're willing to bet on. So um, you know, looking at metrics that are secondary, more like yield on cost or IRR partitioning, how much of the deal, uh, how much of the cash flows and the proceeds and the, the exit capital essentially is going to be derived from the sale versus the cash flows during the hold period. If you're if you're relying on it more on the cash flows, it's a it's a much more conservative deal than relying on some sort of a, a capital event in the future that you don't have certainty around. So. Uh, those types of things are, are really important. So looking at it from like kind of a qualitative standpoint, as well as a quantitative standpoint. Excellent. I can tell you that, you know, as left field investors, we are super excited about this because it was about a year ago, just over a year ago that we started adding deal webinars and, and providing deal flow to the community. And we, we try to be very clear that, you know, it's a DIY group while the community will help you at the end, you got to make your own investing decision. And this is just another avenue for LPs and left field investor members to have, you know, curated deals now that that will be, you know, have a second set of eyes, as you said. So super excited about this. Um, is there anything else that we need to share about InvestWise Collective with the community that that you uh, want to, to wrap up the, the, the podcast? Well, we have uh, investwisecollective.com up and running now. So I'd encourage anybody that's interested in learning more about the fund to head over there. There's a, a form that you can sign up for future communications uh, from, from our team on. Uh, that will be you know deal information. There'll be newsletters highlighting what's going on in the market, what we're seeing. Um, there'll be updates on you know any conversations that we've had with operators and introducing new operators to the community. So uh, I'd encourage people to go over there. And if there's any interest in wanting to schedule a call, um, there's an opportunity to do that on that forum where you can request a call and we'll reach back out to you and, and we'll uh, we'll get on the horn and you can ask any question you want at that point. Excellent. And the, the main um, operators, the fund managers, are you're one of them and then Ryan Steig and Pat Wills are the other two fund managers. And then the LFI team will also be supporting um, this operation just as uh, Red Hawk will be as well. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Pat, Ryan and I have been working behind the scenes for the last six months to meet all the regulatory requirements, working with attorneys, the SEC, 
working with our, our backend uh, investor portal and, and all the kind of work that goes into kind of getting the thing off the ground. But the work is really about to begin right about now. Well, we're, we're excited and we're thrilled to do it. So last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? Oh, man. I mean, there's there's a bunch of great podcasts out there, um, yours included. I mean, I, I just have got so much out of listening to other people's experiences and investment philosophies and current events, macro trends, et cetera, et cetera. One of the ones that I think really hits home for me is the Old Capital podcast. Uh, with Paul Peebles and Michael Becker is usually the, uh, the secondary host, and sometimes James Ang is on there as well. Those guys bring it every time. I think uh, when you think about how deals get done, and this is more, it, it, they're out of Texas, and they do talk a lot about Texas multifamily, uh, but I think you know their ability to kind of summarize what's going on in the capital markets and the debt markets carries over to a lot of, a lot of markets out there. And uh, Staying on top of what's going on in the capital markets is is really important, in my opinion, because you think about it, lenders can bring up to, today it's lower, but up to 80% of the capital required for a deal. So they're the biggest investor in these deals. And what they say and how they dictate terms definitely impacts returns for everybody else. So uh, that's one that I really think is pretty high level and, and good content. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. And then you said this before, but if, if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about InvestWise Collective, can you give out that information again and then specifically also your contact information? Yes, sir. So investwisecollective.com is our website. Uh, my company, redhawkinvesting.com is another website to come and visit to. And then uh, you can reach out to me personally on my email. It's paulshannon at investwisecollective.com. And then also touch base with me on LinkedIn or within the LFI community, I'm an infielder there as well. Excellent. And just as a side note, Paul has is awesome on LinkedIn and, and he's putting some of that content up on the LFI infielders forum as well. So really appreciate you being on the podcast, Paul. Really excited to work with you and Red Hawk on InvestWise Collective. And uh, just that, thanks again for being on the thanks show. Thanks for the opportunity, Jen. It's been fun. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Left Field Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight. I was really excited to have this conversation with Paul because this InvestWise Collective has been in the works for several months and Paul and Ryan Stieg and Pat Wills have been, spent a bunch of time getting it all set up. So we're super excited to uh, to see how it goes. And, and just talking about it got me really fired up. So a lot of the stuff that Paul said in the beginning was talking about his investment history and, and, and just some of the stuff, you know, he, he, he looks at the dead and it's got to match the business plan. And he was talking about the Midwest, how that is improving as a market because there is growth there. But it's not as you know. There's not. They're not delivering as many new units as maybe in the southeast and the and the smile states. You know, in the southwest as well. So you know, he's looking a little bit more in the Midwest. I, I like that. Um, and you know, he, asking him why he does passive investing alongside the active, it makes sense. It allows him to test operators, test asset classes. It also makes active investing makes him a better passive investor because he's evaluating these passive investments, but he's talking to operators. He's learning from them, sharing what he knows. They're sharing what they know, and it just makes everybody a better investor. And so he's going to be really good at at kind of analyzing these um, these investments as they come out, and then he can kind of do some of the due diligence um, along the way. 
And he made a lot of sense when he's talking about the 5% risk-free return at a bank, right? You can get a bank account now that'll pay you 5%. So if a bank account's paying you 5% and then you wanna go do a syndication and only paying you maybe 10% or 12%, there's a lot of risk there. So now it might make sense to, to maybe balance that out a little bit and maybe take some of that 5% risk-free return. Because before, you know, a year ago, if we we're gonna put money in a bank account, it's paying us nothing. Now you can get 5%. That doesn't maybe match inflation, but it is giving you a return and it's a low risk return. And one thing I really liked about Paul is he's, you know, he didn't really invest much in 2021, the latter half in 2022, because he saw troubles coming. He was patient with his capital and now he's seeing opportunities. And a lot of people are doing the opposite, right? We invested a lot in 2021 and 22, and now we're seeing some of those deals not pan out. And so we're scared. And so we're sitting on the sidelines and you don't want to do that. You don't want to miss these potential opportunities that are coming now. And that's why it was such a great time to launch InvestWise Collective. We're super excited about it. LFI is partnering with Red Hawk. We're partnering with Paul. We still have the LFI guys with uh, Ryan and, and Pat in there. And we're going to get more deals with, with better terms. And it's not going to replace the deal webinars that we're doing currently, but it's going to be kind of another place where you can invest capital if, if, if you uh, find deals that you like. And the nice thing is it's not a blind fund. It's a fund where once you're part of it, you can pick and choose which investments you want to get into and which you don't. So super excited about that. You know, the LPs, we will still make our investment decisions on our own, but we can rely, as I said, on the due diligence from experienced investor in, in um, Paul and Ryan and Pat, and then they'll curate these deals that we can review and pick which ones we want to go on. And, you know, often, hopefully, we'll get better terms with those. So we're pretty excited about that. And lastly, I love one of the last things he said, math doesn't lie, but spreadsheets do. And it will be nice to have someone like Paul who can check the math, because that doesn't lie, but can dive into the spreadsheets and really double check the syndicators and the operators in a, in a way that most LPs can't. And so that'll be a nice thing as well. So we're super excited about InvestWise Collective. Check out the website, investwisecollective.com. If you have any questions, reach out to Paul. All his information's in the show notes. You can also reach out to Ryan, Pat, or, uh, or even me and Chad, although we are involved, we're not as involved as the other guys. So that's it for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.